In Scotland, when friends get together, they blether. When these three friends happen to be Scottish Blue Badge tourist guides, you can be sure that the country that they're so passionate about will be right at the heart of their discussions. Be it contemporary or historical, culinary or cultural, reminiscence or anecdote, from accommodation to zoos, the chat will range right across the entire alphabet of topics and issues that are live and happening in Scotland right now. We hope that you'll join us. There's nothing to beat a recht git blether. And welcome to episode seven of Scottish Blethers podcast. Coming up, we're going to explore the following themes. Uh, hello, I'm Helen and my blethers about Andrew Carnegie. I'm Susan and I'll be telling you a little bit about shooting in Scotland. And I'm Liz and my blether is about a very important date in the sporting calendar, the glorious 12th. And we're going to finish the episode with each of our favourite Scots words of the week. So, Helen, over to you, Andrew Carnegie. Carnegie or Carnegie, depending on who you're talking to. Ah, yes. Well, that's a very good thing. And the way to remember his pronunciation, Andrew Carnegie, is that his nickname was Naig. So it's Andrew Carnegie. He was born in Dunfermline in 1835, and his uncle, George Lauder, was a great storyteller and introduced Andrew to the fabulous and varied history of Scotland. He also had a wonderful library and would allow Andrew to borrow books. Early signs of his later entrepreneurial savvy were apparent. Andrew named his rabbits after his friends if they collected food from the hedgerows for them. He also learned the lesson that hard work brings its own reward. He worked hard to learn the poem which won him first prize of one penny in the school Robert Burns competition. The local landowner opened his estate on one day a year for Dunfermline families to enjoy. All families, that is, except the Carnegie family, as they were politically active and vocal about the inequality between the working classes and the moneyed classes. The Carnegie family's decision to emigrate to America and their subsequent life there is well known. Andrew became the richest man in the world at his peak his peak wealth is equivalent to approximately $309 billion, which compares to Bill Gates' $136 billion today. Very much richer was Andrew. In 1883, he donated his first public library in Dunfermline and subsequently over 2,500 Carnegie libraries were built throughout the English-speaking world. When Carnegie married Louise Whitfield, she supported his philanthropy and his intention of giving away virtually his entire fortune during his lifetime. Andrew saw the rich as trustees of their wealth, who should live without extravagance, provide moderately for their families and use their riches to promote the welfare and happiness of others. The death of a young man in Dunfermline Loch, while attempting to rescue a swimmer in difficulties, laid the seed for the Carnegie Hero Fund. In the early 1900s, when a family lost the breadwinner, some of those families barely survived. The continuing aim of the Hero Fund is to recognise civilian heroism and give financial assistance where necessary to people who have been injured 
or to the dependence of people who have been killed in attempting to save another human life in peaceful pursuit. He described the Hero Fund as my ain bairn. Towards the end of his life, Carnegie, a pacifist, had a single goal, achieving world peace. He funded the building of the Peace Palace in The Hague to accommodate the International Court of Justice, which aims to prevent war between states by applying international law. By the time of his death, Andrew Carnegie, despite his best efforts, had not been able to give away his entire fortune. He died broken-hearted about the failure of his efforts in 1919. A man who dies thus rich dies disgraced, was one of his quotes. So, how do you think his legacy learnt in Dunfermline and continued through his sort of legacy and his, his wealth, how do you think it is relevant today? Well, that was really interesting, Helen, because although I live close to Dunfermline, as you do, I didn't know a fraction of that. And we all know about Carnegie's wealth, but, um, you know, about the heroes, all of that was new to me. So really interesting. It was interesting as well, um, Helen, you were saying he was, you know, interested in achieving world peace. Well, all that came flashing into my mind was the image of a beauty pageant and uh, the models and what are your aims for the world? Well, I'd like to achieve world peace. <laughs> oh, that's right, Susan. I think he, I think he probably had more of a, a go at it than some of the um, beauty pageants. Yeah. And the library at the Peace Palace is the largest library on international law in the world. His contribution to Dunfermline particularly, but to the world in general, was just immense. Everywhere you go in Scotland, you can look at the entrance to the library and if you see the sign engraved in it, let there be light, you know that that's a Carnegie library. But he was a very hard man. And there were a lot, you know, who had cause to curse him through th- their life. I mean, he he wasn't uh, you know, by a, a soft touch by any manner of means. I think one of the things about his life is that they emigrated when Andrew Carnegie was 13 years old. When he lived in Dunfermline, they were in the beginning sort of at the top level of the craft artisan skills, the handloom weavers. They were well respected. And then when industrialisation came, the bottom dropped out of their world. Nobody wanted to pay for good hand-woven stuff. But he is the epitome of the, the American dream, really, isn't he? Because he came from a very poor background in Dunfermline in Scotland. He emigrated to the States and, you know, life wasn't easy to start off with, but he worked his way all the way up to the top. But the bit I like is he never forgot his roots and where he came uh-huh. from. And he was always doing something to improve everybody's lot and give them a chance, like the chances that he'd managed to get. Yeah, absolutely agree with that particularly the chance for an education whether it's through libraries or through college and in Dunfermline he gifted Lauder College which was named after his uncle as you mentioned there Mm -hmm. Helen Mm -hmm. and I always think it's really ironic that Lauder College sought to change the name to Carnegie College (laughs) thinking that they might get some sponsorship from the Carnegie family in in the States of course the Carnegie family now although they're not down to their last shilling by any manner of means they're certainly not worth billions as uh, the family once was. But I think, too, with that, Andrew Carnegie gifted money to many, many things, but he never actually said to anybody, look, this is what I want you to do with the money, except for the money for what became Lauder College. He said, the only thing I would ask and Mrs Carnegie would ask is that you name this college after my dear uncle, George Lauder. 
name it Lauder College. And he got let down on that. But as a as a resident of the Dunfermline area, one of the greatest gifts was Pittencreef Park. Yes. And the letter by which he handed that over to the trustees, I mean, he's just so eloquent and he comes away with these statements in it. But uh, Pittencreef Park was the park that he didn't get access to as a yes. boy. And now it's open to the public and it's one of the greatest green spaces in Scotland. Mm-hmm. And if we think about his education, you mentioned his eloquence and his education. Four years education in Dunfermline is the only formal education he ever had. Self-taught, yeah, quite something. So what other modern philanthropists can you guys think about? Who else have we got in Scotland just now? I suppose there's Sir Tom Hunter. He does quite a lot of philanthropy. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And Tom Farmer, he's another one who's got the philanthropy medal from the Carnegie Trust. Ah, do you want to tell us a bit more about him? Well, Tom Farmer is the man who founded the company called QuickFit. I don't know whether some of you might know it out there. QuickFit sort of revolutionised the way garages worked. And he is very, very religious. He lives in Edinburgh and he has just set up these garages and is giving his money away in philanthropy. Yeah, he's a very interesting man. I remember seeing him as a guest speaker mm-hmm. and when he came up onto the stage, he was carrying a quick fit plastic bag and he said, mm-hmm. uh, I hope you like my novel briefcase, but why should I go around advertising Samsonite when I can be advertising <laughs> quick fit? <laughs> a clever man, a clever man. Well, ladies, I think we'll draw Andrew Carnegie to a close and just finish off with one of the quotes from him. Whoso wants to share the heroism of battle let him join the fight against ignorance and disease and the mad idea that war is necessary. So I will now pass on to Susan, who's going to talk a little bit about shooting in Scotland. So Susan, let us know all about this. Thank you. Uh, So a total change in topic from Andrew Carnegie, um, which is great because I now know how to pronounce his name properly. Um, (laughs) So shooting in Scotland, it can be quite an emotive subject, but... I think we need to understand a little bit about what it's about. Um, People from all walks of life take part in shooting, and it doesn't have to be the shooting of animals. It can be uh, round discs called clay pigeons, and certainly this is something that I do. We have quite stringent laws, so no handguns, no automatic guns, and there's different types of licenses that you need to get depending on what you're looking for. So if you're looking for a shotgun, which is what you use for the clay pigeon shooting, You need one type of license, which you have to renew every five years. And it can take months to get a license if you're applying for the first time. You can't get a gun until you've got a license. You can shoot with somebody else that has a license with you, but to get your own, you need to wait. You need a doctor's report. They have to put a flag on your medical records as well so that everybody knows that you've got a gun, just in case you have any mental health issues or um, other kind of issues that might impact on your ability to keep a gun. You need references. Uh, You need to say where you're going to shoot. You need to say where your guns are going to be kept. And that has to be a locked cabinet that's bolted to the floor and or the wall. And every five years that gets reviewed, that will get renewed and you can carry on shooting. I take part in clay pigeon shooting and it's a sport I love. And there's car mechanics, there's office administrators. It's not as some people might perceive to be a sport for the people that have got lots of money. There is, of course, game shooting as well, but we'll, we'll leave that one out for the minute because I know Liz is going to come on to some game shooting 
afterwards. So really, Helen Liz, I know you don't do much shooting. What kind of questions do you have for me about shooting in Scotland? Well, I think it's, as you say, um, for the majority of people in Scotland, it's something that is not within their ken. They just don't come into contact with it. And so there's this perception, because of the game shooting side of it, that it's the toffs. But up in the Highlands, it is very much part of the way of life. You know, it's it's income for the, the remote areas of the Highlands. So it's very divisive between between the two. But, you know, I'm always glad to be educated by people like yourself that actually know what they're talking about rather than me that just blethers on about it. Well, I don't know if I know everything about it, but I can, I can talk about my experience. Um, so I am part of uh, a, local, a couple of local um, clay pigeon clubs and there are different ways of shooting clay pigeons. So these are like... Um, what they call traps and they're like mechanical kind of flingers flinger there's a good scottish word for you flinger (laughs) it's like Uh, flinging a cd yeah exactly so it throws out what is the size of a cd basically and some are smaller and it'll throw it out and it'll emulate the flight of a bird so whether it's going straight up in the air or if it's coming straight towards you over your head or it's coming low left to right or it's like a rabbit bouncing along the ground and you have all these different targets this is what we call sporting targets And there'll be a mixture of these and there'll usually be five of you in a line. You each take your turn at shooting specific targets and then you'll move to somewhere else for a different kind of target. It's all very responsibly done. You can go to a clay shooting ground, but it goes all the way up to Olympic level shooting. So you've got Olympic trap and skeet. And we have some very good shots in Scotland that do very well at the Olympic Games and the Commonwealth Games. So, and it all starts from this grassroots, from people that are just going out for a bit of a play. And I know certainly when I shoot with people that are a lot better than me, it does help improve my shooting. And it's about hand-eye coordination, really, and a good laugh and a bit of fun, but responsible use of guns. Well, it's quite funny. I once did clay pigeon shooting, Susan, and I don't think my shoulder has ever recovered from that (laughs) recoil of, oh my goodness, I take my hat off to you. I nearly took my shoulder off. (laughs) It's lots of fun. I mean, there's some days we'll go to some of the estates, they do simulated days. And on a simulated day, you'll have like what they call five drives. So that's five lots of targets at different places. And there'll be a line of five of you all shooting at the same time. And these targets will come from four or five different directions in front of you usually or up over your head. And this is when you're actively encouraged to poach from the person standing next to you. Because normally on a game day, you just have your straight line of vision out ahead of you. But on simulated clay days, you're encouraged to poach. So I had one about a month ago and I had my brother on one side of me. Well, you can imagine what that was like. It was like the red rag to a bullet. I'm going to show you. Liz, do you think we could maybe encourage you to have a go at some point? Oh, I'd love to have a go. Yeah, it's just, um, as I say, it's it's one of those things that you don't think of walking in off the street. I mean, I, I, coming back to the kind of, kind of serious side of it, I mean, what you were saying about the stringent laws, this is the topic which I think Americans find very interesting when I'm taking them out on tour that the, the you know the absolute stringent regulations which we have so that for the vast majority of people in Scotland it just never comes within their their mm-hmm. ken within their their area of knowledge um so it's people largely like yourself who have some kind of sporting background rural background living in those mm-hmm. areas where it's part of the culture 
But then I have so many friends that live in Edinburgh, Glasgow, Aberdeen, Dundee, that all go shooting as well. I mean, there's a lot of ladies, so there, there's a, a kind of a little bit of a push over the last three, four years to get more ladies into shooting. So I'm part of the Scottish Ladies Shooting Club and they have it open to people to come to ladies to come and have a go once a month in their their shoots and it's amazing the different people that get involved in this absolutely and it's just so much fun so we should get you along to one of those definitely (laughs) i'm just thinking thinking that one of our friends liz um in this salon area the farm they have as part of diversification clay pigeon shooting up at the farm right and um they, they they get quite a lot of stag parties going up because they have a hovercraft <laughs> and they do quad bikes. We parties perhaps, so, or we'll think that it's the stags going yes, up. Yes, since we're in shooting, yes. Um, we should, you know, bachelor parties going up there. And so it, it is something that is accessible. It is very accessible to all sorts of people, as you say, Susan. You've convinced me. You've convinced me. <laughs> Yay! And of course, there's lots of clubs all over Scotland that you maybe don't hear about much. There's clubs, but there's also um, sporting grounds. There's one near Dundee called Ochter House. Uh, there's County Clays at Dunkeld, which is the one I go to a lot. Um, you've got one down in Carcoddy. There's one down near Falkirk, the National mm-hmm. Shooting Centre. Yeah. Um, there's a couple in Ayrshire. So they, they are kind of all, all over, over the place. Yep. So yeah, so I've kind of covered the clay side of it, but I'm going to put over on to Liz now to talk about the glorious 12th. Well, thank you, Susan. I mean, August in Scotland is an absolutely beautiful month because that's when the heather moorland is in bloom. So anywhere you go, particularly if you've got some sunshine to really light up, um, it's one of the iconic sites of Scotland. And the other thing that's associated with August is an important date, the 12th of August, because it's the start of what we call the open season for for grouse shooting and uh, the people that are involved in that sport would call it the glorious 12th although the grouse might call it the inglorious 12th not a good season for them we have open seasons for all um, of the game birds in Scotland because it's only part of the year that you can shoot them so that for the other part of the year they can breed and increase the numbers in the population so the grouse season opens on the 12th and it closes in the middle of December and that is a really important date in the rural communities in Scotland because grouse shooting is still a very important generator of income and it's just part of the rural way of life. And for people like yourself, Susan, who are skilled in the, the art of shooting, it is the ultimate experience because the grouse is known as the king of game birds. Because it's not reared artificially like pheasants, which are incredibly stupid birds that fling themselves at your windscreen. (laughs) It's actually a native to Scotland. And the heather moorland on which it lives and breeds is not a natural habitat. It's maintained. So since Victorian times, we've had people who go out and who burn the heather and uh, make sure that it's a patchwork habitat so that there's some fresh new heather shoots coming through for the birds to feed on, whereas there's some old shoots, old heather plants for the grouse to take refuge in, protection from the wind and the weather that they find out on the heather moorlands. It's not all about the grouse though, but we can come back to that. We'll come back to that. We'll grouse for the moment. So why is the grouse so highly sought after? Well, it's native, it's wily, 
and it's very, very fast. It takes off and explodes out of the ground at about 70 miles an hour, up to 70 miles an hour, and it dips and it dives and it hugs the contours. And so if you are trying to test your skills, it's the ultimate challenge. To have this challenge doesn't come cheap. People are prepared to pay thousands of pounds for a day on a Scottish grouse moor. But as well as shooting the grouse, you also get the ultimate experience because it's all about the ritual, the ceremony. On the first day, the glorious 12th, you'll have kilts, you'll have bagpipes, you'll have little tots of whiskey as you start. And then throughout the day, you'll be fed regularly with the best of Scottish produce. You'll be in your tweeds, you will be in muted colours so that you don't stand out. And safety is taken very seriously, so you'll be given lots of instruction in what you're supposed to be doing. But, of course, the Glorious Twelfth is very contentious because people up in the Highlands and other areas across Scotland, for many, it's their source of income. But for others, it's um, like a farming environment. You're farming the grouse out there. You're feeding them gravel that takes away ticks and medicates them. And most serious of all, some people would claim that in order to protect the grouse for the shooting, you're killing some of Scotland's iconic birds like the golden eagle or the red kite. So it's not without controversy. So I'm sure we're going to have a good debate about this, Susan. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, I mean, there are some myths and things out there and there are different viewpoints. And it, this is an exceptionally emotive and contentious subject. If you believe those who work on the moors, um, so the gamekeepers, the estate managers, the estate owners, they will say that actually the work that they do on the moors, so the burning of the heather, the muir burn, actually helps more than just the grouse. Because what it does is it creates new shoots of life where the heather has been burnt and it comes back. So that's food for not just the grouse, but other birds as well. And then the older stuff is used for nesting. And they only carry out the muir burn between October and April. In terms of the grouse shoot itself, there is a grouse count every year and many estates will choose not to have any grouse shooting if they don't feel that there is a sustainable population of grouse on the moors and then you come to other birds well as with any walk of life there are rogue elements and I don't think that the country community is without them either and there has been chat of some of the birds of prey going missing. Now, in some cases, this may well be justified and some people have been prosecuted for it. In other cases, it's like, oh, the satellite tag has stopped. And the big controversy just now is that the satellite tags are not independently monitored. So bias comes into it. And there's many reasons why, sat why satellite tags will stop communicating. And then some of them have actually started several months later. So, you know, there's there's so many things you could do, but it, there is evidence out there that shows that a managed grouse moor is better for other birds like curlews and stuff than non-managed moors. And there's a number of case studies now that show that RSPB managed moors, where there is no shooting, they've seen a huge decline in the amount of other birds round about. Whereas the managed moorland, they're seeing an increase in the numbers of other birds. So... Yes. Depending on which side of the fence you sit on, uh, some people will agree with one side of it, some people will agree with the other, 
I'm sure there is a middle ground to be found, but until there's an independent body, I'm not sure that can happen. No, I absolutely agree with you. And and without the grouse, there would be no Heather Moorland. And Heather Moorland has been described as the equatorial rainforest of of, um, Scotland because uh, it's it's one of the largest concentrations of Heather Moorland habitat in the world. I think it's about 70% of Heather Moorland is in Scotland. And if it's left to its own devices, we have what's called rewilding. So we have this debate about whether we should allow it to go back to the natural state. But for me, it is such a beautiful, iconic region when you see the heather in full bloom. I know, it's, it's incredible. Right now, at time of recording this podcast, the hills are absolutely purple. I look out onto one of them and the colour is just spectacular. Mm. It's just beautiful. And so as somebody who is kind of sitting on the fence, you mentioned the fence, Susan, I just, what my overall perception of grouse shooting and game shooting in Scotland is the very, very precise organisation of it, that it, it seems safe. If I'm walking in the hills, I know when and where I can walk and be safe because there's no shooting going on. It's quite well documented. Talking about walking, I think the division for me, in Victorian times when the shooting started in Scotland, it was what was called walked up shooting. So you went out on the hills for a day with your dog and you walked around the Heather Moorland, which is very difficult, by the way, because it's notorious for tripping you up. And at the end of the day, you might have come back with a couple of brace of grouse in your bag. And for me, that was fair. You know, that was the, the skills of the hunter against the skills of the hunted, you know, that their grouse could get away with it. But they decided that that was too tough. So they came up with what's now the norm, which is driven grouse shooting, where you have beaters out there with whistles and dogs driving the grouse towards the guns. Well, I think for me, that's tipped it a little bit too much in the favour of the gun rather than the grouse. Oh, there's still a fair skill in hitting one of those things when it's going that fast, <laughs> let me tell you. Yeah. Okay, well, I think that's drawn the, well, we'd never draw this debate to an end, just like the debate in Scotland at higher levels. We could go on all day about this, but I think we'd better draw our discussion to an end. It's coming to the end of the podcast, so let's go for words of the day. Helen, what's your word of the day? Right, well, my word of the day is chuchter. That's T-E-U-C-H-T-E-R, a chuchter. And quite appropriate for our blether today, a chuchter is normally refers to somebody who lives in the country, not a city dweller. Thanks, Helen. My word of the day really is more the phrase uh, of the episode, and it's ya canny whack it. Last week I was away in the northwest of Scotland uh, in Assent, and I spent a week in a place called Clack Toll, right on the beach. And it, we had beautiful weather and the hills were purple and the sea was blue, turquoisey blue, and the beach was golden. And I did a video of it because I was so blown away by the beauty. And the video goes, God, a summer's day in Scotland, you can't whack it, meaning you can't beat it. Absolutely Excellent. agree with you. Um, I've been saying that. I've been up in the Highlands, so I've been wandering over these Highland moors um, with the heather in full bloom. And I agree with you, you can't whack it. But my word might be used by the grouse as it takes a wee look out, because my word is keek. K-E-E-K, not to be confused with the word keek, which means something <laughs> quite different entirely. But a wee keek is a wee look. So if he's thinking of coming out, if it's after the glorious 12th, the, the grouse might have a wee keek about him. 
before he puts his head above the heather. So Liz, I think it's only fair you should have a second word of the episode since you've mentioned one and explain what the other one's all about. <laughs> keek. Well, keek can be used very descriptively in Scotland. Keek in its most basic form might be something that sticks to the sole of the shoe if you're out walking. Right? If you get my point. <laughs> yes, right? yes, yes. But it's used in many, many ways. So some people might say that what I've been contributing to our blethers today it's just a load of key. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or if a kid has done something and run away with something you wanted, ah, you wee key. Yeah. <laughs> Another use of the word? Exactly. Many, many uses. Very descriptive. Brilliant. There we have it, our blether for this week. If you'd like to engage with us on social media, everybody out there, um, we're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as Scottish Blethers. We'd love to hear what you think of the episode and any topics that you might like us to cover in the f- in future blethers. So please do get in touch. So it's cheery bye from me. Ta-ta the new from me. And if I don't see you through the week, I'll see you through the windy from me. Bye. See ya. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>